0: Welcome everybody to tokens of wisdom. I'm your host, Dave Rothschild, a partner at Cole Freeman and Mallon, a boutique law firm based in San Francisco with one of the leading private fund practices on the West coast. Before we dive into the episode, like always, please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the show. Nothing I say here is legal investment or tax advice. Well, while most of the sane world has been on vacation enjoying the August holidays, here in America we don't do stuff like that, and so it feels like a lot's been happening in the crypto world lately. Lots of newsworthy events have popped up over the last few weeks, and while none of them is individually worthy of its own tokens episode, everyone loves the occasional news roundup. And so that's what we've got for you today. I'm going to touch on a handful of newsworthy items that have popped up over the last five weeks, so if you are one of those lucky few Americans who's been on a beach somewhere and not paying attention to the news, you've found the right podcast to listen to. Now, I'm listing these items in no particular order, except that we're going to start and end with people suing the SEC for arbitrary and capricious decision making, because that's fun, and because we love shapes here at Tokens of Wisdom, and circles might just be the most majestic shape there is. So to start it out, we're going to talk real quickly about the Grayscale Court win. Now, it's been a couple weeks, so you're all probably aware of what went down, but for those of you whose heads are in the sand or in the clouds, Grayscale wanted to convert its Bitcoin trust into an exchange traded product. There have been a lot of Bitcoin-related ETFs proposed over the last few years, and all of them were rejected until last year, when two Bitcoin futures ETFs were approved. Now, the SEC had rejected ETFs on the grounds that they were not designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices, which is a requirement to list a new product like that. The SEC was satisfied that the two approved futures ETFs solved this problem by entering into a surveillance sharing agreement with the CME. But when Grayscale reapplied to to convert his Bitcoin trust into an ETF, the SEC once again said no. And Grayscale said, That's some bullshit. Actually, they said, SEC, we believe you acted arbitrarily and capriciously in rejecting us. That violates the Administrative Procedure Act, and we'll see you in court. Now, the Exchange Act allows aggrieved parties to appeal SEC decisions directly to the D.C. Court of Appeals, and so that's what Grace Gale did here. And in front of a three-judge panel, they argued that the SEC acted arbitrarily and capriciously in denying their application to convert their trust into an ETF. As very quick background, the Administrative Procedure Act in the United States says that when making decisions, government agencies have to treat like cases alike. That's the crux of this argument. Grayscale is saying that their ETF was rejected, even though on all material factors, it is just like the futures ETFs that the SEC approved. And they presented a lot of evidence. I mean, the most compelling piece of evidence was that there is a 99.9% correlation between Bitcoin's spot market and its futures market, which means that if there's fraud in the spot market, it's going to be detected in the futures market. And by proposing to enter into an identical surveillance sharing agreement with the CME, as was entered into by the two futures ETFs, Grayscale believes that just like those two futures ETFs, they solved the problem of not being designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. At least they think that their solution was good enough for the SEC with respect to the futures ETFs, and so it should be good enough for the spot ETFs too. The SEC even acknowledged that surveillance of the CME futures market would detect fraud in both the spot and futures markets, but still said, no, we're not approving this ETF. This three judge panel of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals said, you know what? You're right. The SEC's rationale here falls short of the standard for reasoned decision making. And the judges sent the application back to the SEC for reconsideration. Now, this does not mean that the spot ETF is automatically approved. I think as most of you know, there are a handful of spot ETFs currently in the pipeline awaiting SEC approval, but it's getting harder and harder for the SEC to take the position that these spot ETFs are not going to be approved. And it would be surprising to me if one of them is not approved in short order. This is a very high-profile example of a court smacking down the SEC in its treatment of digital assets and crypto writ large. This was not just a district court judge issuing one order. This was actually a court of appeals made up of three judges, and I'll note here that while I disdain the current practice of naming the president who appointed specific judges, it is noteworthy that the three judges that participated in this decision come from differing political backgrounds and have different political affiliations. All of them agreed that the SEC acted arbitrarily and capriciously and fell short of the standard for reasoned decision-making. Now, just when you thought this episode couldn't possibly get more exciting than the Administrative Procedures Act, it's now time for a scintillating discussion of the FASB's new fair value accounting rules for digital assets. Woo-hoo. This is actually a big deal for companies that hold or want to hold a portion of their balance sheet in digital assets. If you want the full backstory on how these rules actually operate, first, ask an accountant, and second, seek professional help. You need therapy. But here comes the lawyer explanation. So because digital assets weren't specifically accounted for in accounting standards. See what I did there? Up until now, companies have treated them as intangible assets and they get lumped together on balance sheets with other things like trademarks that are not typically traded. That means that if you hold a portion of your treasury in Bitcoin, in your books, you record the price you paid and then you have to mark it down for, quote, impairments, unquote, i.e., if the value falls. And then you can't mark it back up when the value climbs. You may have heard that crypto is fairly volatile. So the prices fall and climb back up all the time prices drop and they rise. This accounting treatment meant that big companies are under-reporting earnings and the market gets a potentially skewed picture of their financial position. The new rules say you value your crypto holdings at their fair value. Amazing stuff. So what's the big takeaway here? The old arcane accounting rules created additional hurdles for companies seeking to hold significant portions of digital assets in their treasury. And these new rules are super logical and they remove some of those hurdles. Third up, we have some new tax rules proposed by the Department of the Treasury. These rules do a number of Things, but one thing they do is clarify the definition of a broker and detail who needs to collect personal information and issue something like a 1099 for tax reporting in respect of digital assets. Now, you know me, I'm no tax expert, but the big so what here is that they've proposed to define brokers so broadly that it would capture tons of participants in the digital asset industry that don't act as brokers in the traditional sense, and they have no means of complying with these requirements. Think DeFi exchanges, NFT platforms, wallet providers. A logical consequence of a definition this broad is that to avoid running afoul of U.S. laws, a lot of these participants might move out of the U.S. and cut off U.S. customers' access to their platforms. Important to note, this is just a proposal so far. This is not a final definition. There's going to be a lot of industry pushback, but here is just another lever that Uncle Sam is using to try and turn off crypto in the United States. Number four, the SEC entered into a settlement with an NFT issuer known as Impact Theory. The settlement says that Impact Theory sold securities without registering them or properly claiming, an exemption from registration in respect of their NFT sales. Now, stop me if you heard this story before, but the SEC is arguing that impact theory entered into an investment contract with purchasers of their NFTs because it was, in the parlance of Howie, one, an investment of money, two, in a common enterprise, three, with the expectation of profits, four, from the efforts of others. Now, if you read through the facts in this case, it's hard to argue with a straight face that these were not investment contracts, that the facts and circumstances surround their sale and purchase by investors did not meet those elements of the Howey test. Reading through the facts, it was almost like a caricature of the Howey test. Impact Theory itself was out there marketing these NFTs, pitching them to investors, telling investors that they would profit handsomely off the company's efforts, telling investors that they were getting a chance to buy into the next Disney at the ground floor. I mean, it really read like a how-to manual on establishing the elements of the Howey test. They literally said, hey, you guys pay Some money, we build the next Disney, and you share in our profits. Now, this is significant because it was the SEC's first enforcement action specific to NFTs. Exciting times. It seems clear, as I just mentioned, why the SEC chose this particular fact pattern to go after. It was just such low hanging fruit. Even in Crypto Mom Hester Pierce's dissent on the SEC's enforcement action, she suggests, without saying explicitly, that the sale probably met the elements of the Howey test, but made some unsurprisingly astute points. In her dissent as well, such as typically when you have an unregistered sale of securities, the remedy is rescission. You give investors their money back. In this case, Impact Theory had already offered to do that before the settlement with the SEC. The SEC's remedies, unsurprisingly, go beyond that rescission claim. And as the dissent notes, signed on by Commissioner Uyeda as well, this enforcement action raises a whole host of complicated questions. What sort of precedent does this set for the NFT marketplace generally? And more broadly, it's historically outside the purview of what the SEC typically goes after. Like, nobody is suing Rolex for selling investment contracts when they tell you that your, the Rolex you're about to buy is going to appreciate in value over time. But look, at the end of the day, the SEC is busy searching for wins. This was low-hanging fruit. They're trying to cast a wide net over crypto, and it's taking all the settlements it can find. I'm not yet sure what this portends for the NFT marketplace more broadly. And as the dissent noted, there are a lot of unanswered questions raised by this action, but we'll see where it goes from here. Fifth, now you've all heard my episode of talking about the Ripple order. There was a subsequent court decision that explicitly rejected the rationale in the Ripple order. If you recall, the the judge in the Ripple case made a distinction between institutional purchasers who bought tokens directly from Ripple and who were made promises about Ripple's managerial efforts leading to an appreciation in value versus algorithmic purchasers who were buying the tokens blind and who had never been made any promises by Ripple whatsoever. And so the judge ruled that there was no basis for determining that those purchasers were reasonably expecting Ripple's efforts to drive any value appreciation that might accrue to those tokens. Well, the Terraform Labs judge basically rejected that out of hand and said, look, it doesn't matter if the purchaser bought the coins directly from the defendants, or if instead they bought them in secondary resale transaction, that has no impact on whether a reasonable individual would objectively view the defendants' actions and statements as evincing a promise of profits based on their efforts. So just like I said a few weeks ago when we discussed that Ripple order, that was a district court decision. It's not binding on other Courts and other judges are likely to reach different conclusions. Well, that's exactly what happened here. So we'll see if this gets appealed. The SEC has sought to appeal the Ripple order, and so we'll see where that goes. But there's all kinds of court action going on in the crypto space and SEC enforcement, CFTC enforcement. Eventually, we're going to get to a clear solution, but it's going to be a while. And in the meantime, people are going to be uncertain about what regulatory body applies to their businesses. Sixth, and finally, the new private fund advisor rule. Now, you all know. About this already because I spent a great deal of time talking about it. If you were able to stay awake throughout that entire last episode, kudos to you. One update since we last spoke, though a cadre of industry groups is suing the SEC to stop its implementation. And guess what they're going to argue? They're arguing, among other things, that the SEC's process here was arbitrary and capricious. That's right, just like Grayscale. And we'll see if a court will agree with these industry groups as well, regardless of whether they do or not. That brings us full circle and I think we can all agree that circles are super fun. Well, now that all that boring regulatory analysis is out of the way, it's time for the part you've all been waiting for. The legal disclaimer. In this show, I describe laws and regulations from a 10,000-foot view, and while this should be obvious to most, I need to say it nonetheless. This show is for informational purposes only, and nothing said here constitutes legal, investment, or tax advice. If you're thinking about starting a fund or you're curious about what's involved, the show is a good resource as you explore your options. But if you're going to pull the trigger and launch a fund, please engage an attorney to assist you. Thanks for listening to Tokens of Wisdom with Dave Rothschild. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends about us. Last but not least, if you have any questions about what we discussed today, feel free to send us an email at TOW at colefreeman.com spelled out in the show notes.